Okay, good morning. I want to dedicate our learning this morning, a refuah shlema for a beautiful seven-year-old girl in our community who is in surgery right now, complicated brain surgery. Her name is Sara Leah Bas Maya Ilanit, a wonderful, beautiful little girl. Please God, with this surgery, she will have a full and speedy and complete recovery and live a full and healthy life. I was with her parents this morning. And I said, I look forward to watching her bat mitzvah montage and remembering all of this as a distant memory together. I want to begin, before we uh, begin with the parsha. today is a Jewish holiday. I don't know how many of you know it, those who are at Minyan this morning, and Omid Etachanan know it. First of all, you like the setup? Would you rather do it in here from now on? Yes. That was a dumb question. What was I thinking? Yes, no, Rubio, Trump. Okay, so... Um, never mind, erase that question. So today is a minor Jewish holiday. Today is called Purim Katan. Today is the Purim corresponding with the first Adar. We of course observe Purim in the second Adar, but we would be remiss if the first Adar passes and we don't acknowledge it. So before we begin with the Parsha, I just want to tell you an incredible, this is the very last words of the very last Ramah, the last comment in all of Shulchan Aruch Orachayim. The first section of Shulchan Aruch, Daily Living, upon which the Mishnaburah commentary is written. So at the end of the sixth volume, Simen Tafresh Tzadi Zayin, it's dealing with Hilchos Megillah, and the Ramah ends there. There's one Sif, and it's talking about Purim Katan. Yom Yedal B'Tezvav Shabada Rishon Ein When there's two Adars, when it's a leap year, the 14th and 15th of Adar, in the first of Adar, you do not say Tachanan. Ve'ein Omrim Mizmor Yamcha you can't fast, no eulogy. But as you know, we didn't read the Megillah this morning, and we don't deliver Mishlachmanos. Comes along the Ramar of Moshe Isilus, Krakow, a later contemporary of the Machaber, and says the following. It's a great halacha. Some say that one should have a festive meal, enjoy a lachayim, have a drink, tap into the simcha. Don't wait another month till the second Adar. Some say on Purim Katan today, on the 14th of Adar Rishon, also Mishta and Simcha. That's not the minog. It's a great chumra to observe. Says the Ramah, it's not our custom. We don't have a mini Purim Suda today. We don't necessarily have an elaborate meal or delicacies. But if you want to observe the opinion of the Machmirim, be Machmir and have a great lunch today. Have a great Suda. And ends the Ramah, the very last words of all, all of Orachayim, Vitov Lev Mishte Tamid. The Ramah is quoting a Pasuk in Mishlei that Tov Lev, someone with a good heart, Mishteh Tamid is always celebrating, is always happy, always has something worth celebrating. You know, there's two types of people. There are those who, even in the most celebratory moments, see what's wrong and they're down and they're downtrodden, they're dejected, they're miserable, who didn't come, who didn't give a big enough present, it didn't work out exactly the way they wanted. And there are others that, no matter what cards life deals them, Mishteh Tamid, life always has something worthy of celebrating. So says the Ramah, because we are instructed to live our lives with a sense that, Mishteh Tamid, always be happy. In the immortal words of the great philosopher, don't worry, be happy. Mishteh Tamid, always be celebrating. 
So therefore, you don't need a big excuse to celebrate. Purim Katan? Good enough! Let's party! It's the 14th of the first Adar. Purim Katan? Good enough! Let's be happy. Every day you're awake, every day you're alive, every day you have your health. Every day is a, is a miracle. What's incredible is that the Ramar of Moshe Isulis ends his commentary on Orachayim and begins his commentary on Orachayim the same way. He ends it with the Pasuk in Mishlei that Tov Lev Mishta Tamid, a person with a good heart is always happy. What's the very last word? Tamid. Consistently, constantly, always. And how does he begin Shulchan Aruch? I don't have the first volume here. But he says a person should always live their lives with an image in front of them, with words in their mind's eye. Everywhere you go and every decision you make and everything that happens, one should think, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid. God is opposite me always. The Chida in his Birke Yosef, his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch says, this was the Tamidin Kisidran. The Ramah organized the Tamidin. The idea of we have a Korban Tamid. We have a Korban Tamid that's brought every morning and that's brought every afternoon. Here the Ramah takes the two Tamids, Tamid to begin Shulchan Aruch and a Tamid to end Orachayim. You know what it means to be a Jew? The daily living of a Jew, Orachayim, begins and ends with Tamid. The idea of consistency, the idea of constancy, the idea of always. This is something from last week's parsha. We're going to get to this week's parsha in a moment. But this is really the idea of last week's parsha. Where last week's parsha we saw the Korban Tamid and the introduction to the Ein Yaakov quotes a Medrash. Don't look for the Medrash because it doesn't exist. But nevertheless, the great author of the Ein Yaakov in his introduction to Ein Yaakov um, nevertheless quotes a medrash, maybe he had a version or a copy or a tradition of a medrash we don't have, that quotes a three-way debate, a three-way machlokas. What is the motto? What is the bumper sticker of the Jewish people? We're not going to get into this now. It's last week's parsha, not this one. But one opinion is Shema, and the other opinion Rabbi Akiva, V'yahat Lorecha Kamocha. And the third opinion is a pasuk in last week's parsha. What's the pasuk in last week's parsha? V'sakeves ha'chat ha'seba boker, V'sakeves ha'shemit ha'zeben ha'bayim. The carbon Tamid, the daily sacrifice that was offered every morning and every afternoon. Shabbos or weekday, Yom Kippur, holidays, no matter what. One of the reasons we fast on the 17th of Tammuz is because the carbon Tamid ended. So you say, okay, what well, they what, what could you do? They prevented them from bringing the carbon. But imagine you didn't miss a day. The first game Cal Ripken Jr. had to miss, Lahavdil. <laughs> The first time he had to miss a game after he set the record, Mr. Consistency, always showing up, Cal Ripken Jr. So the first day you miss something that you've never missed, those who learn the daf know what it means to consistently make the daf. If you have a pattern, a habit, you have something positive that you do always and regularly. It was devastating to the Jewish people when they missed the carbon Tamid, when it was Bato, when it was nullified. So the carbon Tamid, and they took a vote, which motto, which pasuk best summarizes or captures the essence of what it means to be a Jew? Shema, the unity of God's existence. kamocha, caring about other people. And they voted no. The rabbis determined that what best describes what it means to be a Jew is the verse describing the carbon Tamid. To be consistent. You're never on vacation. You never take a break. What it means to be a Jew is to perpetually be in a state of serving the Almighty, of fulfilling your mission here on earth. You're never off. You're never retired. You never take a break. It's something which is tamid. 
So the Ramah of Moshe Islas both begins and ends his commentary or his um, words on the Shulchan Arach and Orachayim. The daily living of a Jew begins and ends with Tamid. And what are the two things we have to constantly do? Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. Every decision I make, I should ask myself. You know, another religion tried to take this from us. But this is ours. Everything I do, I should ask myself. What would God want me to do? A business decision, a purchase on the internet, what I'm reading, what I'm thinking, what I'm speaking, where I'm going, what I'm doing. What would God want me to do? What will give nachas to Hashem? Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. He is always in front of me. That tamid, that sense of consistency. We used to have a member of our executive board at the shul. She taught me a very important lesson. This goes back more than 10 years. For 10 years, I still remember it. She used to say, you know, not that the executive board ever made decisions that they would hide from the membership, but sometimes you're empowered and you're, you have to make some difficult decisions. And she would always say, would we be able to defend this decision if we had to make it in front of the whole membership? I always tell my accountant, I want you to push the envelope as far as you can, but don't do anything you wouldn't do if the IRS agent weren't looking over your shoulder while you were filing the taxes. It's a great principle. If you, right? To summarize what she said is, if you can't do it in front of your spouse, it's cheating. If you wouldn't do it in front of your spouse, it's cheating. It's a great metric. It's a great measure. So the principle of Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Summit is the IRS agent, your spouse, the membership, God, Tamid. He's with you in every room. He's with you at every moment. And don't do anything you wouldn't do in front of God. Well, God is with you wherever you go. So the notion of both beginning and ending Orachayim with that word Tamid, the idea of consistency, that's what Purim Katan is all about. So I want to wish everyone a happy Purim Katan. I'll also take the opportunity for a public service reminder. I usually do on Purim because it's a month before Pesach. I'll give you even more lead this time. I'll tell you a little secret. All raw, unprocessed meat and chicken is kosher for Pesach. So go today and buy it and put it in your freezer before the prices go up. <laughs> because when the kosher of Pesach chicken and meat comes out and it is significantly higher and I'm not accusing anyone of anything there are fees for processing and koshering and staffing and so on but all unprocessed raw chicken and meat is kosher for Pesach go buy it put it in your freezer and before you cook it for Pesach rinse it off and you will save a lot of money and you'll have more to give to Boca Raton Synagogue okay Parshas <laughs> Kisisa we are in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash page 484 quick overview of the Parsha that I want to get into we're going to do a little bit unusual I gave you handouts today we don't normally do that but we're going to go through this uh, shear with these uh, handouts inside. But a quick overview of the parsha: We know our parsha begins with a call for a census of the Jewish people. A census to determine how many Jews there were traveling together. And the census was done in an unusual fashion. It would have been much easier to count people. One, two, three, four. But we know that we Jews don't count people. We don't turn people into numbers. We count, we recognize the inestimable value of every single human being created in God's image. And God forbid we would ever turn them into a number. That's what our enemies have sought to do. Most particularly the Nazis, who actually branded numbers to dehumanize and take away a name. So we don't give numbers. So even when we count for a minion, 
We don't count one, two, three. We have psukim that have ten words in them. So we use the words rather than count people. Or we say, not one, not two, not three. I'm not sure that helps, but not helping. But um, the, uh, we don't count people. We don't count people. They're not numbers. So therefore, how is the census done? People gave a half shekel. Now obviously it would have been much easier if everyone gave one shekel. And then however many shkolim that you counted you had would be the exact amount of people that there were. So why a half shekel? What's the idea of a half shekel? So our commentaries will famously point out the idea is that if I gave a whole, I would feel complete without anyone else. I'm independent, I'm complete. Look at my unit of a contribution I made. It's a whole unit of one. By only giving a half, everybody confronted the reality that no one person is complete on their own. They need someone else to complete them. We are each a half and we are completed when we collaborate. We are completed when we partner. We are completed when we join with other people. We have a tradition, this, this coin was, uh, Rosh tells us the image of on fire. There's a lot to talk about here, but I want to get into our, our section. What's interesting is the Pasuk says, When you take a census, when you count, according to how many there are, each person should give each person gives an atonement for his soul. What is the word kofar nafsho? What atonement do you have to give? So what did I do wrong that I need atonement for? I'm just participating in the census. I just want to be counted among the numbers. Why does the Torah describe as a kofar? as an atonement. Rabbi Soloveitchik and his answers that the truth is every one of us are hektish. We, as an extension of the Almighty, have the status of being sacred, of being holy, of being consecrated. If we want to be able to live our personal life, if we want to be able to derive personal pleasure from this world, we have to redeem ourselves first. Just like hektish, you can be podeh, you can redeem something which was consecrated in order to transfer its sanctity onto something else, thereby redeeming it to be used in a mundane way. So to our lives, which have been consecrated to the Almighty, if we want to be able to derive personal pleasure from this world, we first need to redeem ourselves. And that's the idea of kofer nafsho. This word vinasnu, I mentioned in Shul two weeks ago, vinasnu is a palindrome. What's a palindrome? The same forwards and backwards. Spelled the same forwards and backwards. And why is it spelled the same forwards and backwards? Vinasnu. It's the idea that when you give, you receive much more than you ever gave. And I don't want to review, but I gave a drush on Pasha's Truma, a similar where it says vihu instead of vietnu, the idea that we receive much more than we ever than we ever gave. And that's not only true spiritually, that when a person is generous. And when a person is gracious, they receive much more than they ever gave. But science is now proving that it's true emotionally and it's true physically. All this research and studies show that the more you give, the happier you are. It's counterintuitive. You think the more you receive, the more you take, the more you lavish on yourself, the happier you'll be. But it's not true. If you're looking to find happiness, we quoted the Rambam in Hochus Megillah, that if you have the choice between spending extra money on greater delicacies at your Purim Suda, we're giving more matanos le'avyonim. The holiday of Purim demands that you give more matanos le'avyonim. Why? I might have thought, for the poor people. But says the Rambam, no. Purim's about your happiness. Purim's about your happiness. You know what will make you even happier? Then first cut corned beef or pastrami or a more expensive bottle of wine or single malt. What will make you even happier in a more lasting way 
more authentic is to be generous with others. So give, not because necessarily only you care about them. Give because it will bring you happiness. And we also saw the studies that it improves your health. Studies that show literally people hooked up to blood pressure monitors. And the more they gave, their blood pressure went down, commensurate with as if they had done aerobic exercise. You can avoid exercising, but you have to give more tzedaka. I don't know which one. I don't know which one is more painful to you, but choose the less painful one. But if you give more tzedaka, it yields greater happiness. It yields greater health. That's why it's a palindrome. Says the Gra Vinnas New. Okay, we have the introduction of the Kior. It would have been easier, right? Understood, but. Why you have a shekel? You know, you cut it in half, it's, it's a coin. The, correct, but the half shekel instilled within a person the notion that I'm only a half and only when I combine with another do I become a whole. We have the introduction of the kior. The kior was the basin with which the Kohanim prepared. They washed their hands and their feet. We know the history of the kior. The base was made from the mirrors that the virtuous women of Mitzrayim used to beautify themselves and it was preserved when the Kohanim looked down as they began their day each day they saw the image that was produced from the mirror of the virtuous women of Mitzrayim, the Nashim Sid Kanios. What's this doing here? Where should it have been? The obligation to build the Kior, the Asisa Kior Nechoshes. Where should the section have been? Should have been a Parshish Truma. There we are introduced to the different Kalim of the Mishkan. So why wasn't the Kior included in those Kalim? The commentaries here discuss this idea. We have the uh, Shemana Mishra, the anointment oil. We have the incest, the Ketoros. We know the Ketoros had a uh, particularly bad smelling uh, odor. One of the ingredients of the, uh, the Ketoros was particularly horrific. And nevertheless, it was included in the Ketoros. And a Chazal understood from here that even the Russia, even the odorous, even the person who is filled with sin has a place in the community. Just like it had a place in the Ketoros, that is a symbol and a model for the idea of the community. Hashem spoke to Moshe, the designation of Betzalel, as having the wisdom. He has this, uh, he's, he's described as being filled with Ruach, Elohim, Chachma, Tvuna, and Das. Anyone know what that's an acronym for? Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chabad, Minatora, Minayan. So this is the origin of these concepts. Chabad, the movement with the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya. What's fascinating about Tanya, if you haven't studied it, you should. Rabbi Steinzeltz has an incredible commentary. It's multiple, multiple volumes long now where he quotes one line of Tanya, three pages explaining it. The next line of Tanya, five pages explaining it. Brilliant, incredible for me. I couldn't learn Tanya without it. I don't have that... uh, Kabbalistic backgrounds or vocabulary. But the amazing thing about the Balatanya, about, about uh, the Sefer Tanya by the uh, Alter Rebbe, Shneir Zaman of Liadi, is you would think that as one of the early generations of Hasidus, it's going to be filled with descriptions of fervor, of emotion, of Islavos. It's all about endorsing learning, Torah. It's all about channeling the intellect. Chachma, Bina, and Das are all parts of the intellect not part of the, emotional, of the emotional realm. It's all endorsing and promoting Torah study and the channeling of the intellect, Chach, Mabina, and Das. So these are the three qualities that B'tzalel is described as having. What are the differences between these qualities? If you had to translate, what's Chachma? What's Bina? What's Das? 
They sound like synonyms, but there are distinctions between the three. What are those differences? Why was it so important for B'Tzalah to have them? What was um, the Atar Rebbe with Chabad naming it or basing it on this principle of Chochmah, Bina, and Das? What was he trying to communicate? All for another time. Then we're introduced to the concept of Shabbos. And here we have the relationship of Shabbos and the Mishkan. We're going to see Shabbos over and over in the next few parshios. Shabbos and the Mishkan. And then we go backwards in time, chronologically. We, see, we thought we were done with our Sinai. We were done with Moshe and the Luchos. But now we go back. Moshe gets the Luchos. He comes down. God says, you better hurry back. They are misbehaving. Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf. That's what we're going to explore more momentarily. Moshe, God's ready to wipe them out. Moshe Davins. Kodesh Baruch Hu acquiesces. Moshe smashes the tablets, which Hashem says, Yashikoach. And then Moshe Davins, Hashem is willing to forgive, but things are never the same again. And uh, the limits of Moshe's vision. Here we have this conversation I wrote about last week, after invoking my childhood memory of the Challenger explosion, where Hashem, Moshe says to Hashem, show me your face. I want to understand why bad things happen to good people. Let me see through your eyes. Let me understand the world through your calculations. To which Hashem says, no. I walk by, you can see the back of my head, you cannot see my face. Which our rabbis understand to mean, we can understand things sometimes in retrospect, but never prospectively, and never even in real time while we're living them. So some, it's, it's after our lifetimes, sometimes it's in our lifetime, we can understand after the fact why events unfolded the way they did. But we don't understand why God runs the world the way He does. And anybody, anybody who tries to take the position, anyone who tries to articulate as if they are God, and with confidence and certainty communicate why the Holocaust happened, why the fire happened, why the tsunami happened, why the terrorist event happened, why this one has fertility problems, this one has cancer, this one is autistic, and this one... Anyone who tells you with certainty or confidence why God does what they do, not only should you not listen to them, I'm not sure you should count them in a minion. Because they are a kofir, they're a heretic. What God says to Moshe is, Lo You're not me. You're finite, I'm infinite. You're limited, I'm omnipotent. You can't understand my ways. They're a secret to you. They're mine alone, says God. And when someone purports to say with certainty, as if they are God, why God did what He did, I believe that that's an act of heresy. I believe they are denying God's omnipotence and God's unique status in this world. And that's all the conversation we see here from our Parsha. It leaves a lot to be desired. The great question of theodicy, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a tremendous, tremendous question beyond the scope of what we're studying today. But what's clear from the text and the exchange between Moshe and Hashem is, Hashem says to Moshe, I I understand. I respect your desire to see through my eyes. But I'm sorry, you can't. Someday you will. But right now you're finite and you can't. Kosh reveals his 13 attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachem, Bechanan. Oh, there's so much to talk about in this parasha. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachem, Bechanan. Gemara Rosh Hashanah records, and we invoke this in Elul and the beginning of Tishrei when we say, Slichos. And Gemara Rosh Hashanah records that Hashem said to Moshe, Listen, I'm going to tell you a little secret. When I get angry at you, when I'm disappointed in the people, when I am about to destroy them, I'm going to give you the secret formula. You say these words before me, and I can't help but forgive you. I can't help but forgive you. And what are the words? 
Hashem Hashem, the 13 descriptions of God's mercy. If you look more closely at the Gemara Hashem, you'll see it does not say, recite the formula before me. It says, emulate the formula. When God is forgiving, when God, the secret to God's willingness to be forgiving, is not when we recite some formula. Say two of these and three of these and you're forgiven. That's not our religion. But rather, it's when you emulate God. So again, not for now, but it's worth going through. What's the difference between Kael, Rachum, Chanun, Erechapayim, Rav Chesed, Emes? What are these 13 attributes? How can we emulate God? Rav Moshe Kordavoro and his Torah Dvora, the great uh, Kabbalist, student of the Ari, wrote a whole book describing these 13 different attributes. And for another time, it's well worth studying them, especially we come together during Slichos, which culminates in the Elo. We scream at the top of our lungs, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachon, Vachanun. We should know what we're saying. What are the differences between these descriptions, these attributes, and how can we best emulate them? Okay. What? We say them on a fast day as well. That's correct. We say on Yantif when we take out the Torah. We say it enough during the year that it's worth understanding what we're saying. A renewal of the bris. Moshe comes down from the mountains. He has this current ore. He's radiating. What does it mean? The origin of the misconception that Jews have horns. Because it describes that Moshe came down. He had these horns of light which were emanating, radiating from his face. What is this idea of the mask? Okay, so our, our Parsha is rich and filled with possibility, but I want to study one particular section, and that is the Chet HaEgel. You have your source sheets in front of you? Everyone ready to go? Okay. So here in source number one, on page one, you have the whole Chet HaEgel there. You have the whole storyline there. We are familiar with it. Moshe ascends on the mountain. He's there 40 days and 40 nights. The people get antsy. The people get anxious. They had marked their calendars about when he would return. That day now, excuse me, that day now comes. They look at their calendar and there's no Moshe. Where's Moshe? They're antsy, they're angry, they're asking, they're worried, they're anxious. So what do they do? They turn to Aaron and they build an ego. Everyone rushes with enthusiasm and alacrity to donate their jewelry, the silk to make the, the calf. And they are prepared to worship it. And what happens? Hashem says to Moshe, Lich raid, I think you need to go down there. Because the people that you brought up from Egypt have become corrupt. First of all, isn't that fantastic? This is like when, when, when my kids are misbehaving and I say to my wife, Your children are acting like animals. <laughs> Hashem says to Moshe, I think you need to take a look what's going on in the other room. Your children that you took out of Egypt, something's gone wrong. Right? All of a sudden, God's giving Moshe the credit with taking them out of Egypt. Your children that you took out of Egypt, they're corrupt. Something's gone wrong. Lech raid. I want to suggest to you, first of all, that lech raid, go down, is not just a topological description. It's not just that Moshe is on a mountain. And they're at the base of the mountain. So he has to go down the mountain. But every time that God, every time the Jewish people do something egregious, they do something rebellious, and God is willing to forgive them, it always describes God as... He goes down. What do we say on the fast day? And what do we say during the Elah and through all Slichos? Right before we introduce 
the 13 attributes of God's mercy. What do we say? Vayered? Vayered Hashem. The God went down. Why is it always described as God going down? Rav Shimon Schwab has a wonderful, wonderful interpretation. Rav Shimon Schwab says, you know, when you live in the ivory tower of perfection, it's very hard to be forgiving of others. When you're perfect, when you can do no wrong, when you've never made a mistake, it's very hard to tolerate the humanity and the fallibility in others. So the prerequisite, the preface before you can forgive is to go down and realize, you know what? I'm also human. I'm also capable of making a mistake. So Schwab says, every time God is forgiving, it describes God as going down. It means from God's distant perch, from the place of perfection, there should be strict justice. There's no room for mercy. From a place of perfection, we should be entirely accountable. Pay the piper. Receive the consequences. The prerequisite to forgiveness is going down to a level where you realize this is a world I created that's imperfect. People are fallible and they make mistakes. So I think here too, he says it in the context of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, always, the Mabul, Noah, you see Hashem goes down. He gives many, many examples. And I think, by the way, it's excellent advice that when we are forgiving of others, we should always remember, if someone is genuinely remorseful, if somebody authentically wants to be forgiven, before we remain aloof. aloof and so distant and so unwilling to forgive, so inflexible, we should go down. And we should remember that we too are not perfect. That we too have been in the position of having to ask for forgiveness. So God says to Moshe, read. Go down. You've been up here with me in the ivory tower. 40 days, 40 nights. Moshe, you haven't needed anything to eat or drink. You have been entirely ruchni. You've been a perfectly spiritual being. read. It's time to go back down to the human realm. It's time to go back down where the human beings roam the earth. It's time to go back down where you see people who are imperfect, making imperfect decisions. And what you will find there is Moshe. Your children that you took out of Egypt have become corrupt. Moshe goes down and he sees they've built this this eagle, this calf, and they are worshipping it. Now, by the way, there's so much to talk about here. Anyone have anything to do today? Are we good? Can we spend all day together? Vayom Hashem Moshe. I'm on Pesach Tess. Look at this. This is fantastic. God says to Moshe, Ra'isi Vinei Who? You see this people? They're incorrigible. They are stubborn. They are obstinate. I can't tolerate them anymore. They are impossible. I'm done. I'm done, says God. Look at them. Look what they've done. Ten plagues. Took them out of Egypt. Split the city. Gave them the Torah. And on our wedding night, they're having an affair? They build a calf and they're worshipping it? Where is the loyalty? Where is the devotion? This Am Kishayorif. They're stiff-necked people. Forget it. Moshe pleaded with God. No, you can't be so angry and you can't wipe them out. You can't do it. Why? Remember our forefathers, our ancestors. Remember why you began this whole thing. 
Remember the people in whom you saw the merit and the virtue to begin this entire project. And you swore to them. And you said that their progeny would fill the earth and we are that progeny. You can't wipe us out. You can't wipe us out. What's amazing here is, I'm looking for the Pasuk. Now, somewhere here, it's escaping me at the moment, when Moshe is articulating his argument to God about why he has to be forgiving of them, what's his argument? Well, he's got a few arguments. Number one, he says, is God, you just went through this entire educational lesson. You just taught the world of your existence through revealing your hand with the plagues and the splitting of the sea and Harsinai. All of that was pedagogic. All of that was educational. Paro said, Mi Hashem, who is your God? When Moshe first approached him. And by the time the story's done, Paro is well aware of who God is. They've been introduced. So Moshe says, God, you've just revealed yourself to the world. You've created the greatest Kiddush Hashem. You've sanctified your own name in the world. Now you're going to destroy the people that you told the world you've chosen to be the role models. What's that going to do for your mission? What's that going to do for your name? What's that going to do for your reputation? And that argument works, which is interesting because God cares about his reputation. God cares about his name. So clearly that's not the argument and that's not how God is appeased. But moreover, Moshe argues something else. I can't find the Pesach right now, but you'll take my word for it. When Moshe turns to Hashem, he says, you know why you have to forgive this people? Because they're stiff-necked and obstinate and stubborn and incorrigible. So what? The very reason God gave, the very liability that God pointed to as the reason that He had to destroy the people, Moshe now comes back and says, that's the virtue, that's the argument, that's their asset, that's their worthiness. What kind of fool is Moshe? Would you ever want him to be your lawyer? The judge says, I'm throwing the book at you because you're stubborn and obstinate and impossible. The lawyer gets up and says, I would like to represent my client. And I'd like the judge to consider the worthiness of my client, the reason you should let him go free, exonerate him. He's innocent because he's stubborn and obstinate. And God just said, I'm Kesheoref. Moshe's answer is, I'm Kesheoref. So the great Piazetzna Rebbe, of Kalanimus Kalman Shapira of Piazetzna, Hashem Yikom Damo, an incredible, incredible Hasidish Rebbe, a Rav, a principal, a school principal, who lived in Piazetzna and then in Warsaw. He was in the Warsaw Ghetto. He was taken to numerous camps and he was ultimately shot dead by the Nazis, tragically. And we have his works because he wrote them and he buried them and they were recovered miraculously. And he has incredible, incredible works. You remember this past Shabbat I quoted from his Tzad Vezirus, his spiritual diary, some of his entries. And we've studied his Chovas HaTamidim, Hachsharas Avrechem. He has incredible, incredible works. And in his, his introduction to Chovas HaTamidim, which is a must-read for every parent and educator there is, it's a letter to parents and educators about educating children. He wrote it, I don't know, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, and he's living in Warsaw, and he's the head of a cheder of Hasidish of children, and it's so clear how, how beyond him the Holocaust was. He could never picture that he was threatened or in danger in Poland or the Jews of Eastern Europe what was going to be coming because he writes about the greatest danger they're facing. And it's not the Nazis. It's not Hitler. It was what he describes then and is all the more true now. He writes so presciently, so prophetically. 
He says, you know what our problem is? This is writing in the early 19th, early 20th century. Our problem is children are maturing before their time. They think that they are more mature than they are and therefore more entitled to opinions and attitudes and conclusions. They think that they are their own authority. They no longer want to defer. He's writing all this before the information age and the internet and Google and everything that we've experienced now. And he describes an entire methodology. How does one educate and inspire children who have matured before their time, who think that they are more mature than they actually are, who think that they are the authority over their own lives? How do you educate? How do you inspire? It's been translated into English. It's called A Student's Obligation. Chovas HaTalmidim. It's an incredible, incredible read. You shouldn't be allowed to have a child until you read this. Chovas HaTalmidim. Nor should you be allowed to be a teacher in a school. The educational methodology is, is something which is beyond, beyond, beyond. I'm tempted to leave the parsha and tell you all about it, but I'm not going to. But one of the points he makes there, he makes an amazing, amazing point, which we could develop much more at length, but I'll tell you somewhat succinctly so we could get back to the Chet Ego. He says, you know, as parents or educators, we identify a liability in a child. We identify a character trait that we feel is a liability in a child. So take stubbornness. I'm sure none of you have stubborn children or grandchildren. <laughs> but it's possible one or two of my children are stubborn. So what happens? When your child is stubborn, when they're young and little, how does that express itself? When you're running late for school, but they insist on putting on their own shoe. Or you're running late to get somewhere, and they insist on buckling their own car seat. Or you're whatever you're doing, and that obstinate, stubborn child will not go to sleep until they get the lollipop, until that stubbornness. And what are you tempted to do as a parent? You're tempted to break the stubbornness. You're stubborn? Oh, you have, you've met your match. I'm the king of stubbornness. I will wait this out. I don't care if I don't sleep tonight or this week or this month or never again, kid, because I'm going to break your stubbornness. I'm going to outlast you. I'm closing that seatbelt. I don't care if you cry for the end of time. I'm going to put on your shoe or close the seatbelt or deny the lollipop or whatever the stubbornness. We try to extinguish. We try to break the stubbornness. Says the Piazetsna Rebbe, what a mistake you're making. Stubbornness is a wonderful quality. And this is what he writes. He says, your child's going to grow up and their peers, his or her friends, are going to blow with the wind. They're going to adapt to whatever fad or philosophy or culture or more is popular at the time. But your child, if they're stubborn, you point them in the right direction and they will carry that stubbornness forward. You taught them to love Torah and Yiddishkeit, putting on tefillin, making a bracha, Shabbos, Yantif, no matter what the other children are doing, flexibly blowing with the wind because they were never stubborn, you direct your stubborn child and stubbornness is the greatest quality. He writes in there another example. He says, you have a child that can be filled with rage. You have a child that flies off the handle. Face turns bright red, goes crazy, rage. What are you tempted to do? And again, so prescient. He doesn't write this word, but he's describing this. You medicate that child. Let me medicate that child. And now the child becomes this numb, zombie, making his or her way through life, medicated to the world around them. Because before, they were just a combustion engine. They were just bred in the face and filled with rage. Writes the Piazetsna Rebbe, that kid is amazing. That kid's got passion. 
They have energy. Channel it. Direct it. Help them find an appropriate expression of it and destination, a landing pad for it. They shouldn't fly off the handle to get angry at their sibling. But isn't it amazing if you take that energy, that enthusiasm that is the core or source of the rage and channel it and channel that passion in a healthy way? And he gives multiple examples of this and he talks, this is the essence of education is identifying the qualities within our own children and rather than trying to extinguish or suppress or deny them or break them, embrace them and channel them and help them find healthy expression in the world so that every child, the whole, the whole uh, introduction is based on the Pasuk. Verse taught, educate every child according to their way and even when they get older, they won't stray from you. Everyone knows the first half of that Pasuk. Everybody knows it. Educate a child according to their way. But the end of the Pasuk is, even when they get older, and says the Piyazetz Nerebbe, there's two ways to educate a child. You can do it through conditioning, or you can do it through inspiration. What's conditioning? If you do this, I'll buy you that. If you don't do that, I'll reward you with this. If you violate this, I'm taking away your that. Conditioning. Positive and negative reinforcement, conditioning. But what happens when you educate a child with conditioning? Gam kiyaskin. What happens when they get older and they graduate your house? And they graduate your conditioning? What happens then? They drop your lifestyle. They move on. They walk away. Because they were never doing it from feeling. They were never doing it from purpose. They were never doing it from inspiration. They were doing it so they didn't lose their laptop and their iPhone and they had their privileges and they could watch TV and they got to go to the mall. But now that they've graduated your home, they've graduated your way of life. So says the Piazetz Nerebi, instead, you can't educate through conditioning, you have to educate through inspiration. You have to recognize the individuality in every child and instead of breaking their individual traits, embrace them, channel them, harness them inspire them when they graduate your home you're good when they graduate your home they're going to keep going with your way of life and there's no perfect I know many have done it right and yet their children have left the path many have done it wrong and they have the most righteous children it's not an easy answer there's no formula no one should necessarily feel guilty you could do everything right and it can go wrong I don't mean to God forbid place the blame on anyone but we still have to take the best strategy that we can. So, coming back, why does Moshe say to God, Am Kishayoref? Piazetz Nerebbe doesn't give this answer, but I'm applying his words to our Parsha. Because God says, I'm finished with this people. They're impossible. They're incorrigible. I'm done. They're so stubborn. Moshe says, God, exactly. Work with them a little more. Let me have them a little longer, because if we get them pointed in the right direction, this stubborn people will make it through millennia of attempts, of attempts to annihilate and exterminate them. This stubborn people will make it through the melting pot of the United States of America and opportunities and invitations to assimilation. This stubborn people will make you proud, God. Don't give up on them yet. And God agrees. We haven't even started this year yet, for the record. This is all the introduction. Okay, but here's what I want to get to. Moshe comes down, he breaks the luchos. By the way, we're going to get to it in a moment, but what was Moshe thinking? Could you imagine there's so much talking in Shul one day? 
I'm so disheartened and disappointed in the talking at shul. You guys are talking? I take the safe of Torah, I smash it on the floor. You're going to talk? I'm throwing the Torah down. You say, oi, but you know, the Torah was written by some sofer. Who gave the original luchos? Who was the artist who crafted and engraved the original luchos? Who was it? It wasn't Picasso and it wasn't uh, Gama. It wasn't any artist we know. It was God Almighty. Moshe Rabbeinu takes the handiwork of the Almighty himself without asking God. He doesn't say to God, um, they're over my head, I'm about to smash them. Just want to double check. We good on this? Are we good? No. He seemingly impulsively is so disappointed in the people, he takes God's handiwork and smashes it. What do you think he felt at that moment? Right afterwards, he probably went, oh boy. Looked up. Good. And what does Hashem say to him? It's the last Rashi in the Torah. The end of Sefer Dvarim. What does God say to Moshe? The last Rashi in the Torah. Yasher Koach Sheshibarta. It's the origin of our usage of the word Yasher Koach. Yasher Koach Sheshibarta. Rebbe of mine says that to people who break their engagement. Or even in a case of divorce. Yasher Koach Sheshibarta. In a case where it's warranted, certainly engagement, better a broken engagement than a divorce. Not that anyone wants either. But sometimes, just as God said to Moshe, Yashikoach Sheshibarta. Sometimes it was warranted and it's better to be broken. So God is making, Moshe is making this argument about why God has to forgive the people. I'm going to try to cram this into the next 10 minutes. And he says, the underline on page 1, source 1, V'yataim tisachat asam v'mayin mecheinina misifracha asher kasafta. Forgive him. And now Moshe levels a threat to the Almighty. God, forgive him. And if not, erase me from your book. Forgive them or I want no part of this. Forgive them or erase me from your book. What in the world is going on in that conversation? What is Moshe saying to Hashem? Is Moshe threatening? Or is Moshe making a serious offer? Listen, I'm good either way. Either forgive them and we can go on. Or erase me. Whatever you choose, you're God Almighty. Is he threatening? Is he posturing? Is he making a serious offer? Isn't Moshe playing God also? If Moshe really does have faith in the Almighty, shouldn't he say to God, look, you're the one in charge. You choose to forgive or not to forgive. You know what's just. You know what's right. You know what's appropriate. I'm finite little Moshe. Ever Hashem. Moshe thinks he's greater than God, that he's in a position to demand of God what is best. You forgive the people, otherwise I'm out of here. Erase me from the book. Moreover, source three, source two rather. We say a pasuk in Dvarim Ish Yumaso. Fathers are not put to death for their sons, sons are not put to death for their fathers. A man is put to death for his own sin. Ish Yumaso. Everyone is accountable for themselves. So Moshe says the Jewish people messed up. Either forgive them or put the punishment on me. Does that sound like our religion? This eerily sounds like another religion that says that their leader was a suffering servant and died to atone for the sins. What is Moshe offering God? I'm willing to die. Take my life, not theirs. I will atone for their sins. That's not our belief. A person dies for their own sin. That's not ours. 
So what's going on here? The Gemara and Sotas Yudalad, source number three. Gemara and Sotas says, Darash of Simlai, Mibneiman is Ave Moshe Rabbeinu Likanas Lai Tisrael. Why did Moshe want to enter the land? Vichilachom the Periyahutzarach to eat the delicious fruit? He wanted a continental breakfast at the Waldorf? Lisbon Mituvahutzarach? He wanted to enjoy the bounty? Of course not. Alakachamar Moshe. The Jewish people have been commanded numerous mitzvahs which can only be fulfilled in the land. Let me enter the land, God. Trumos and Maestros, Shemitah and Yovah, there are all kinds of mitzvahs which depend on the land. Let me into the land so I can do the mitzvahs. And God says, Why do you want to do these mitzvahs? You want the reward? If that's the reason, don't worry. You don't have to enter. I'll make it as if you did them and I'll give you the reward. Sorry. And it goes on. Talmud Lomar. Aritzlach. And he keeps going. Those were mighty mitzvahs. Tachat sheher lemavas nafsha. Fine. Now you have what the underline is. Shemasar atzmo lamisa. Shemar Moshe sacrificed himself to suffer death in a bid to protect the people. In this conversation between Moshe and God, the Gemara Chazal interpret Moshe as having been willing to sacrifice his life, his willingness to suffer death to atone for the people. But what does that mean? The Gemara is not bothered, but I am. That's not our belief system. I can't die for the people. I can't choose to atone for your sins. Everyone's accountable for themselves. So what's going on? What's going on? Source number four. Gemara Brachos Daf Lamed Beis. The Gemara here elaborates also on this offer of Moshe. And says the Gemara, Malamed Shetfaso Moshe LaKadosh Baruch Hu Ka'adam Shutofes Eschavero Bebigdo. The Gemara paints a picture, a bold and brazen picture as if Moshe grabbed Hashem from the suit, from the lapels. He grabbed him from his shirt and he said, I'm not letting go of you, God, until you forgive them. And again, Shmuel teaches at the end, that Moshe was willing to die. So you have a Medrash Mechilta, the Gemara Sota, the Gemara Brachos, they all elaborate as if Moshe is willing to die for the people. What's going on in this passage? Is it a threat? Is it a serious offer? Isn't everyone accountable for themselves? Why is Moshe offering? What's really going on? And I would like to submit to you that to understand Moshe's statement, one has to better understand what's going on with the Cheta Egel. What went wrong? We can't accept it on the surface. The simple meaning is too difficult to accept. The Chizkuni here gets into it in source number 5. Chizkuni says, what are you going to tell me? This is in form of idolatry? Right? The classic understanding is the Chaita Egel is they built a calf and they bowed down to it. It was an act of idolatry. But says the Chizkuni, that's not possible. Aaron would have endorsed, Aaron would have participated in an act of idolatry, even if the people were so fallible. But Aaron, the great Aaron who was Kadosh Hashem, the Navi Bisro, so many of the mitzvahs were given through Aaron together with his brother. Aaron is just a step below Moshe. There's no way he would have participated in an act of idolatry. 
And if he did, why did he survive? Shouldn't he have been killed in the plague with all the other perpetrators of this act? How did he survive? And why do his children merit to continue to play the role of the Kohanim? To be the priests? Shouldn't that have been removed from them? Just like the Bechor lost its prominent place? So the Cheskuni has all of these questions which all lend themselves to the same thing, which is, what is really going on in the Chet Ego? It is too simplistic to say, well, they worshipped an idol. Moshe didn't come back. They abandoned the whole project. They worshipped an idol. God wanted to destroy it. It's too, it can't be. Aram never would have participated if that's what was going on. Moreover, look at Rashi. Source 6. Rashi says, Ein muktamam uchar b'torah, what is the proper or appropriate chronological order of what's going on over here? Says Rashi, this whole episode happened before Parshish Truma. This whole episode happened before we ever heard of the Mishkan. The Mishkan, says Rashi, was the response to the Cheta Ego. And Rashi gives the whole calculation calendarically to prove his point. He says the Torah is written thematically, not chronologically. And really, this whole story came before Parsha's Truma, but God chose to place it here nonetheless. And my question is, what's the nonetheless? Why did God choose to place it here? If really this whole thing happened in Parsha's Yisro or Mishpatim, when the Torah was given, why aren't we told of the Chet Egel then? Why do we have Truma Tetzava, Kisisa, Vayakal Pekude? The story of the Ego, bookended, surrounded by the stories of the Mishkan. What's the connection between the Mishkan and the Chet Egel? so much so that the Mishkan had to surround this story? The Medrashir alludes, Amar Kashbarhu Sur 7, Yavu Zahava Mishkan, V'yichapar Zahava Egel. So the Medrash says, let the gold of the tabernacle atone for the gold of the calf. Amar Kashbarhu Yisro B'Shosh HaSisa Misa Egel, Hechastim Osi Be'ela Elohecha. When you built that calf, you angered me. When you said, Ela Elohecha, Achshav Shasisama Mishkan, Be'ela, but now that you've built the Mishkan, Ela Pekudeh Mishkan, Ani Misratza Lachem, Ve'ela Pekudeh Mishkan. So the same word, Ela, you sinned by using the word Ela, you used your gold to sin by building the calf, but now you've atoned to it by using your gold to build my Mishkan. But it's still very ambiguous. What does that mean? What's the connection between the Mishkan and the Egel? Why was the Egel moved to later only after the Mishkan? And how could Aaron have participated in this? What in the world is really going on? And here we have the Kuzari. I alluded to it a few weeks ago. And the Kuzari says the following. We're going to run out of time, so I'm going to tell you a lot of this outside now. But the Kuzari, Rav Yehuda Halevi, the great Rav Yehuda Halevi, the author of Tzion, 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 Halo Tishali. Many of the keynotes that begin with Tzion, the great author and poet, Paitan, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, I think we had one of the people of the book on him. Did they have that one yet? A few weeks ago. I didn't teach it, right? No. I would have, I would have remembered that. I'm sure it was excellent. Oh, uh, Rabbi Blumenthal taught it. That's right. So the Kuzari, amazing. So Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. So he writes in his Kuzari. Everyone familiar with the background of the Kuzari? Even if you're not, we don't have time. So the Kuzari says the following. Kuzari says the following. Don't take it on its surface. Don't believe it was an idol. It wasn't an idol. There's a very basic human nature. There's a human attribute that we are physical beings who live in the physical world 
And we relate to and identify that which is physical. And when it's not physical, when it's invisible to us, it's very hard for us to connect with. It's very hard for us to believe in. It's very hard for us to form a bond or relationship with. We're physical beings in a physical world. Seeing is believing. We have five senses that allow us to interact with that physical world. And so that's the world that we operate in. So what happened? Moshe appears to the Jewish people while they're in Egypt and he says, I want to let you guys know there is a God. He's the creator of the universe. He's omnipotent. He's in control of everything. But here's the thing. He's invisible. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't feel him. You can't smell him. And you can't hear him or talk to him. You talk to him. You can't hear from him. He's invisible. So the people say, you know what? We're not sure we believe that. But in the meantime, we've got you. And you keep talking to him and coming back and communicating to us. You are this intermediary. You are this physical being. And when we want to know what is it that God wants of us, hey Moshe, we can come to you. We see you. You're a physical being. We can touch you and see you and hear you. And we know you are here. So we identify, we connect, we relate to that invisible being through you, a physical being. So what happens, says the Kuzari? Moshe says to them, I know that you connect to God through me. Give me 40 days. I need to go spend time with God. So I'm charged. I can download a lot of information as that intermediary, as that spokesperson that I'll be able to come back and share with you. Give me 40 days. I'll be back. People say, I don't know. I need you. They're kind of clingy. But they say, you know what? Go. But they've marked their calendar because they know. I got a little one at home right now who's very clingy to his mommy. And whenever she's not around, he asks for his mommy. And if we go away, he's going to be looking at that calendar wondering, when is she coming back? So the people are wondering, when is Mo? We need him. He's our physical connection. Where is he? And when that day on the calendar comes and goes, and Moshe's not back, what happens? They say, you know something, Moshe's not here. We still believe in the invisible being who created the entire universe and who dictates and determines it all with divine providence, but we need something physical to connect to him. If we don't have Moshe as the physical being to connect to him, we will construct, we will build something else physical in order to connect to him. So says the Kuzari of Yudah Levi, the Chita Egel was not an act of idolatry. It was not even an act of rebelliousness. It was a noble intent. It was with the desire to draw even closer to God. It was just misplaced. It was just corrupt. It wasn't authentic. It was counterfeit. It was counterfeit. And that's why Aaron, even Aaron went along with it because it was not idolatry. They wanted to be close to God. They just needed something physical. That's very real. That's very understandable. So says the Kuzari, because it's so real and understandable, God says, you know what, I get it. And Moshe is not going to live forever. So what can I give you instead? The Mishkan. The Ribbono Olam validates their human need for something physical. But he says, and here's the key caveat, you can't determine what the physical thing is. If you really believe that I am the infinite omnipotent one, then I and only I get to determine what the physical manifestation is. Only I get to decide. So the Mishkan is the perfect antidote. It's the perfect response 
to the Chaita Egel. And that's why Rashi says it's out of order, and that's why the Medrash says that the, that the Mishkan atones for the Chaita Egel, because it was never ever about idolatry. It was always about the mistake of thinking that you can introduce new physical entities, objects, rituals, practices, because they'll be religiously or spiritually meaningful for you. God says, I validate your very real need, but you have to do it my way. You can't do it your way. And the Kliyakar in Source 9, the Kliyakar writes, Now you understand why Moshe broke the Luchos. I'm going to tell it to you outside. But now you understand why Moshe broke the Luchos and why God was okay with it. Because Moshe's on his way down from the mountain. And he sees, oh my goodness, these people, they're worshipping something physical. They're failing to realize that God is spiritual and invisible. They're feeling that they need something physical to connect to Him. What's going to happen if I show them these luchos? They're going to bow down to these luchos. They're going to embrace these luchos in an unhealthy way. What is the best lesson He can teach at that moment? That the physical is just that, it's physical. It's an illusion. It's counterfeit. The only that's real is the Almighty. How can He best teach that lesson at that moment? Take the luchos and smash them on the ground. And when they see that Moshe, their physical intermediary, has taken those luchos and he smashed them, he purged them of their sanctity, and he made them mundane and he broke them into shards, they will understand that God cannot be captured in something physical. God cannot be contained in something material. And so says the Kliyakar, that's what motivated Moshe. Moshe didn't have an anger problem. Moshe wasn't violent. He didn't smash the vase against the wall because he was having a fight with Zipporah. He broke the luchos, not out of anger or rage. It was an educational choice. It was a teachable moment. He sees them with the ego and he says, they're too connected. They're trying to place God in something physical. What will be if I give them the luchos? So to teach them, he takes the luchos and he smashes them. He smashes them. Rabbi Bachi here too says, this is the connection of the Mishkan and of, of the Chet Egel. The Beis HaLevi in Source 11, the Beis HaLevi describes here, again we don't have time to read it, but the Beis HaLevi, Beis HaLevi was Rav Yosef Dov Salavechik, Rav Yashaber Salavechik, the Rav, our Rabbi Salavechik from Yeshiva University, this was his great-grandfather, Rav Chaim's father, the great Beis HaLevi. So the Beis HaLevi writes that the mistake of the Chet Egel was their, their need was legitimate, but the way they expressed it was illegitimate. And this is for another time, but even when we have a genuine spiritual thirst, we can't invent or create or initiate our own ideas. We have a Torah. It has 613 mitzvos. We have a Masorah. We have a chain and a transmission of a tradition about how to serve Hashem. And we can introduce new rituals and new practices and new positions in the community because we have even a genuine spiritual craving. Even if the craving is genuine. But it has to be part of the system. It has to come from the inside. And it cannot come from our own creativity introduced from the outside. And that says the Beis HaLevi is the Chet Ego. The people's need was legitimate. The way that they achieved it and expressed it was illegitimate. Says the Meshachachman, source 12, that nothing has intrinsic holiness. 
God created an entire world which is essentially neutral. It's parv. What determines whether an object, something physical or material, has holiness? What determines that? Us. We do. Our intent, the intent that we give it, is what determines its status and its holiness. Nothing is intrinsically, nothing is holy automatically. And if you skip to the second to last page... This is the mandate of Kedoshim Tiyu. Kedoshim Tiyu is embrace the physical world around you and imbue it with holiness and sanctity. How do you do that? That's for another time. But by distinguishing it and by elevating it, you give it holiness. Nothing is automatically holy. So let me ask you, is a Sefer Torah holy intrinsically? Is a Torah holy? No. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Look at source 15. So Shulchan Aruch, Yoradei, Resh, Ayin, Aleph. Dealing with the laws of Tefillah and Mezuzah. Says the Shulchan Aruch, Ein kosvan sefer Torah al-or, behem achayev of atmeim. You can't write a Torah on a cloth that's not valid. Velo al-or dag, afilotar. Amal kosvan al-or, behem achayev of atorim, afilotar, or nevelos, atrefos, tzorshiwa oros, mubadim, al yedi Yisrael, the shame sefer Torah. In order for cloth, in order for the hide, the skin of the animal, to be eligible to write a Torah on it, it has to be prepared, it has to be worked by a Jew for the purpose of a Sefer Torah. Shayomer Betchila Sa'ibud, who has to say at the beginning of the tanning process, I am doing this, I am, I am imbuing my intent, I am injecting my intent into this physical process. And what happens if he doesn't? And similarly, we have Tzorach Shiyomar, the next Shulchan Aruch. Tzorach Shiyomar, Asofer, Kishiyaschal, Lechtov, Sefer, Zani, Kosel, Hashem, Kedusha, Sefer, Torah, Umaspik, Lechola, Sefer. The Sofer, when he places the quill to the cloth, and he begins the process of writing a Torah, it's filled on a mezuzah, has to say, I'm doing so, shame. I'm doing so with this intent. And what if he doesn't? What if a Jew for Jesus takes a quill, and takes parchment, and copies over verbatim, word for word, letter for letter, crown for crown, a Sefer Torah. And presents it to the shul. And when we look at that Sefer Torah, in a vacuum, it looks exactly like a Sefer Torah. It's on a proper hide, written with proper ink, every single letter of the text is proper, the crowns are proper, the shapes of the letters are proper, the rios are proper, everything about it is perfect. What's the status of that Torah? Put it in the garbage can. Could you imagine taking a Torah scroll and putting it in the garbage can? But that Torah, with God's name, so to say, written in it, is garbage. I get a call once a year because there are missionaries who will leave Bibles at the front door of people's home on Montoya Circle. Once a year they come through town. I guess they encounter that first person they leave uh, or somebody that causes them to leave. But they will leave you literature. And it looks exactly like our Bible. And people call me, what, what do I do with this? I say, put it in the garbage. But it's got God's name in it. Put it in the... It doesn't go in Seamus. It does not go in Seamus. God forbid you should corrupt, contaminate our Seamus with a missionary's Bible. I don't care if it has God's name and I don't care if the text is exactly the same as our Torah. It goes in the garbage. Because for Jews, those are like broken luchos. Nothing, there's nothing intrinsically holy or sacred 
within an object. It's all the intent that we place in it. So here's the punchline of the whole shir, and then I'll let you go. The punchline of the shir is this. I would like to humbly suggest to you the following. This is my own interpretation. When Moshe says, God, forgive them, and if not, erase me from the book, I would like to suggest that Moshe was not threatening, nor was he making a promise. Moshe was saying the following. He said, God, I'm clearly part of the problem. The people have a problem. They are too connected to the physical world and they're trying to see you through a physical manifestation. And if my absence caused them to build an ego, I'm clearly part of the problem. I think you need to erase me from your book. I'm clearly part of the problem. I think you've got to take me out of the equation. I shouldn't be part of this story. So perhaps Moshe is offering, not as a kapara, Moshe is not offering to die, to atone for the sins, to be the savior. No, not at all. That's not our religion. Moshe is saying, the people have a problem, and I'm contributing to it. And if the only solution is to erase me from your book, I'm willing to take that for the team. If I need to disappear so they realize that you, God, exist, even when I'm not around, then take me away. This is why we don't even know where Moshe is buried. The very end of the book of Dvarim, when God takes Moshe all alone, it's one of the saddest things I've ever read in my life. I get emotional every year towards Simchus Torah when we read this. Moshe who dedicates his entire life to the people. Not a shul of 800, but a people of 2 to 3 million. His children, he loses his relationship with his children. They become what is for too many people, the typical rabbi's children. They do not exactly go into the rabbinate, Moshe's children. He loses his relationship with his wife where he's physically withdrawn from her and has no intimacy. Moshe, who is doubted and the people are skeptical and cynical of him at times, they think that he's siphoning off money from the Mishkan. Moshe, who's given almost everything for the people, he's dedicated his whole life. And at the very end of the Torah, this Moshe, who's given his entire life, you know, you read about Rav Avadi Yosef passed away, a million people crowded Yerushalayim for his funeral. Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Soloveitchik. How many people attended Moshe Rabbeinu's funeral? There wasn't one person, not one human being. God invited Moshe on the top of another mountain. He read Vidui with him. Moshe lay down and he died. And God buried him. By the way, that's why this week was Zion Adar. On Zion Adar is the day that we honor the Hebrew Kadisha. Why do we honor the Hebrew Kadisha on Zion Adar? We'll have our Zion Adar dinner in the second Adar. Because God Himself acted as the Hebrew Kadisha. The Hebrew Kadisha got off that day. And that's why we honor the Hebrew Kadisha. We give them off that day on Zion Adar. So that picture is so sad. But it had to be that way. Imagine Moshe Rabbeinu's funeral crowded with millions of people who would be devastated, despondent. They could never move on. Imagine if we knew where Moshe was buried. The trips that we take there the websites that would be selling the opportunity to put a note in Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, grave, in his O.L., the O.L. of Moshe Rabbeinu. So we don't know where Moshe is, is buried. So that's perhaps what's going on here. Applying the insight of the Kuzari to its full extent, maybe we can understand that statement of Moshe. If you're not willing to forgive them, erase me, because I'm clearly part of the problem. And I'm just going to end with one last comment. Maybe I should have ended already because this last comment may get me in trouble, but I'm going to end with it anyway. You know that there's some controversy about how the Sefer Torah makes its way from the Ark to the Bima. 
along the machitza, in women's sections, not in women's sections, which men get to kiss the Torah. You know, on the one hand, the Shulchan Arab is clear that we're supposed to show affection for a holy object like the Sefer Torah. Kiss the Torah when it goes by. But on the other hand, the halach is also very clear. The Torah should take the quickest route to the bima, because that's the most honorable for the Torah. And people should go to the Torah rather than the Torah go to them. It's very interesting. There's one should not turn the Torah into a cheta egel. Our job is to serve God. And our job is to show honor to God and to the Torah. And one should be careful of the demands that they make in both sides of the machitza. Our job is to make our way to honor and kiss and elevate the Torah, not to parade the Torah in a way which serves or elevates our agenda or our approach. And even in modern times, there is the danger and the risk of a cheta egel of taking our sacred objects and so worshipping them that we tend them into an expression of our agenda. So there's nothing wrong. Men and women should kiss the Torah. When our Torah makes its way along the machitza, we ask the chazan to hold it up. We're more than happy and eager and inviting women to reach over the machitza, kiss the Torah. There are no halachic problems. It's a whole other conversation about a woman kissing the Torah at any time of the month or the year or her life. There are no halachic challenges at all. Men should kiss the Torah. Women should kiss the Torah. But men should not sit waiting for the Torah to parade to them. Women should not demand. Our job is to honor and go to the Torah, not to turn the Torah into a chay egel for us. So wishing everyone a great week. A very happy Purim Katan. I'm sorry that I went over time. But thank you for indulging me.